Uh, at this time, we'll dismiss our young people to our Sunday schools, all except James. Since I'm his teacher, he gets to hear me out here. Okay. Why don't we turn in our Bibles to the book of Ephesians? Chapter 6. And uh, shall we pray? Again, our Lord God and our Heavenly Father, we commend ourselves to you for your Holy Spirit to take this, your word, and apply it to our hearts and to our lives so that we might not leave here the same people that came here, but we might be changed, that we might be uh, reminded of truths that maybe we've known for a long time or maybe even never thought about before. But, each of, but you know where each of us are spiritually and how we need to grow. So we commend ourselves to your Holy Spirit for that work. And we'll give you the praise in Jesus' name. Amen. As I was contemplating, I've been contemplating for several weeks now, since Pastor asked me to, to speak at this time, what I should uh, speak on, and, and I've been debating this, that, and the other thing. And, and uh, as I was driving to church last week, I was reflecting on Brother Ed and, and the uh, issues, the physical issues that he's had, and, and how many, uh, basically speaking, the spiritual oppression that actually has affected us in this, our little church here over the past several months. And the Lord impressed on my heart this thought that we're in a battle. You know, well, I know that, yes, but we're in a battle. We're doing something this church, this, this little body of believers here is doing something that Satan and his, his cohorts are opposing, actively opposing. And I wanted to remind us, remind ourselves, what it is, what it takes to live to successfully live in an environment such as that spiritual warfare affords us. And the central passage of this is, of course, Ephesians chapter 6. So that's why I wanted to go here. Um, just, as a, just as a reminder of the context here in it, Previous to this point in this particular book, in the first three chapters, Paul took that, that time, that, those three chapters, to teach some of the deepest doctrines in the entire New Testament. If you want to go waiting, and I shouldn't say waiting, I should say 
deep diving into doctrine, go into Ephesians chapters 1 and 2 and 3. And you'll, you'll spend a lot of time there. Then in, in chapters 4 and 5 and up to this point in chapter 6, Paul said, okay, how does all this doctrine, what's it supposed to look like lived out in the life of a believer? It's one of the, the therefore passages. He says all this, therefore, and the old saying, if, if you see the word therefore, you wonder what it's there for. And it is, it is a continuation of the thought. All this is true, therefore, this. How do we live? And that's what Paul discusses up through chapter 6 and verse 9. Starting in verse 10, we have the last section of the book which is an admonition to be strong and a reminder as to whom we are really fighting in this world. Because it is so easy to forget that our argument is not against the ungodly humans around us. I mean, it's easy to see them... It's easy to, to get angry at the argumentation and angry at people, but in reality, they're the ones that we've been sent to minister to. And if we get angry, if we get all flustered, and if we get fighting with folks that have the same ungodliness reigning in them as we have in us, I mean, we're no better than anybody else on the face of this planet. How can we minister to them? How can we share the gospel with them if we're nose-to-nose -nose in argumentation with folks like that? Paul reminded, wanted to remind us all what is right, and how to protect ourselves. I mean, a, a soldier has quite a bit of uh, body armor on, even modern soldiers on the battlefield. And that's what Paul really talks about here. How do I need to outfit myself in this warfare. And that's what we're going to get at it at uh, chapter 13. As, as important as verses 10 through 12 are in this passage, we're really going to skip over much of it other than we, verse 12. This is really where we want to start. And I'm going to... Uh, well, I guess I, I'll read it out of here, but I'll be probably be switching back and forth between the King James and, and the, the English version here, English Standard Version. Starting in verse 12, he says, For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against 
rulers, against authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. One of the, one of the great deceptions that Satan has done is portray himself as this red horned character in a union suit with a tail and a pitchfork. He's, he's, he's made it look as if he's a cartoon character. And therefore people dismiss the reality of his existence. If we were to see him, we would be awestruck at his beauty. He's the most beautiful creature that the Lord ever made. He's the most intelligent creature that the Lord ever made. He's the most powerful creature that the Lord ever made. And he knew it. And that's why he said, I will. That's why he, he rebelled. He looked at himself, became proud of himself. But he's in the process. He's in the, the business of deceiving, of taking people away. And if he can get people thinking that he's nothing more than a, a cartoon character, if he can get people interested in haunted houses and, and wizards that peep and mutter, as uh, the book of Isaiah says. He has successfully taken our mind away from the reality of who he is. But remember, we do not wrestle with those people people around us. We do not fight. We should not fight, let's put it that way, with the folks around us. If our doctrine came from observation, the, the way many people act, you wouldn't think that's true. You wouldn't think that's the case. How many churches are filled with rancor and hatred for, their, for brethren how many Christians hold grudges against fellow Christians for some slight or some other perceived fault, whether real or imagined? How much bitterness is expressed against the unsaved for the ungodliness of their actions and of their, their beliefs? Yet all that energy is misdirected. Not to mention the fact it shouldn't be in existence at all. Because the Lord has called us, again, to minister, to, to give the gospel, to help these folks. What did Paul tell to Timothy? The servant of the Lord must not strive, but be gentle to all men, apt to teach, patient in meekness, instructing those that what? That oppose themselves. Because what they believe is really keeping themselves apart from what is really in their best interest. 
And it's our duty as Christians to present the gospel, as we'll see in a little bit, so that they realize, yes, that is what is the greatest blessing for me. But, and I should say, because of that, how are we to outfit ourselves? If we're going to get into the middle of that fray, if we're going to get into the middle of that, that effort to bring the gospel to people, which is really what, we're, we're, what this church is all about, right? We're trying to, to build a group of people to make passionate, maturing followers of Christ ready to reach out to the world. And if we're going to do that, we're going to face opposition. So how are we going to outfit ourselves? Verse 13. Again, I'll read out of the... the uh, English Standard Version, we therefore take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all, to stand firm. Take up the whole armor of God. This, again, this exhortation is tied directly to the warning of who our enemies are. We said, we just sang, God is our hiding place. And that's absolutely true. Because remember who we're fighting. Woe to the immature Christians who think that they can stand toe-to-toe with Satan in a fight. It's sort of like seeing the uh, Chinese man in, in uh, uh, Tiananmen Square standing in front of a T-63 Russian tank. Unfortunately... That tank wouldn't stand a chance against Satan. And then we would, if we're going to stand up against him, we even stand less of a chance. How could we begin to stand against the onslaught of his hatred and power? Yet Paul says we can as we outfit ourselves with these attributes. Now, please, and I, I've heard many, many sermons going to great length to discuss the different pieces of armor here, the belt and the, the breastplate and the helmet and, and debating whether this is a, a Roman uh, armor or whether it was Greek armor or, or whose armor. Who cares? Don't get, don't get bogged down with the illustration. What does Paul want us to have? First thing. Stand therefore having fastened on the belt of truth. The very first thing here he's talking about is truth. You might say, quote uh, Pilate here, what is truth? What are we talking about? 
Well, Paul's not merely speaking about telling the truth. That's what he was doing back in chapter 4 and verse 25. Wherefore, putting away lying, speak truth one to another. And of course, that's included in this. But this is really talking much more. It's a life, an entire life being dominated by the truth. <coughs> Practicing moment by moment to be conforming our lives, A, to reality, B, to the Word of God. And maybe I should put those things backward, or the other way around. God's Word, which is truth, becomes the standard by which we evaluate everything we say and do. And think, in every motive that we have. <coughs> That's what God expects of us. I mean, we can very easily take the Ten Commandments and begin to compare our life with that. Okay? Have I? Stop and think. Now, so far this day, have I loved the Lord my God with every fiber of my being? It's often been said, well, the Lord Jesus himself said in answer, what is the first and greatest commandment? Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, thy soul, thy mind, and my strength, thy strength. Okay? If that's the first commandment, that's the most important thing that we can ever do. Would failure to do that be the greatest sin that there is? I think so. And yet, that's, I would say that that's one of the things that we commit most often. When we're motivated, because we're all this mixed bag of motivations. What we want to do, we don't do. I mean, we're all in the middle of Romans chapter 7. That which I would, I do not, but what I hate, that I do. And we end up doing the things that are right, but possibly with motives. To, well, I want somebody else to see how good I am and it's one of the things that I struggle with even, even here boy I, I want to preach a sermon that will wow people oh yeah why well I, I want them to like me well that's the wrong motive we want to please God we want to serve him we want to, to show our love for him Moving on in the Ten Commandments. Well, I really didn't lie. I just sort of stretched the truth a little bit. Just sort of, just sort of massaged it a little bit. Yeah. Well, nobody was hurt. Well, how often do we do that? How often does sin get redefined so that it's really not all that bad? Well, that's not according to truth. That is living a lie. Well, if, if I pick this thing up that, that the company 
that belongs to the company, nobody will miss it. They'll just, and the company can afford to buy another one anyway, right? That's stealing. No matter what you say, no matter how we justify it. One of the, one of the saddest things, a couple of my fellow workers were, where I am, the one fellow goes to a church where they have a, uh, every Easter they, cre- they make uh, chocolate-covered peanut butter eggs or chocolate-covered something, you know, cream eggs or whatever, and they sell them as a fundraiser. And this, this fellow brings a box of them in and on an honor system, you know, put, a, put a however much money in and then you take however many eggs that, that you have. Another individual who is a professing Christian regularly takes from that and doesn't put any money in. No matter what you think of that particular fundraiser that that church is doing, that's stealing. And yet both of these are... These folks, if you talk to them about spiritual things, they know exactly what to say to you. They know exactly the right words to use. Are they saved? The Lord knows. When we live like that, how easy is it for Satan to take advantage of us and utterly destroy our testimony? This one individual that was taking the eggs, another individual that I pray for daily, he was again a co-worker of mine, as ungodly as the day is long. He was raised in a, in a uh, professing Christian home and he's rejected everything. That was, he was told, but he knows the truth because I've witnessed to him time after time after time after time. But he sees this other professing believer stealing those eggs. And what does that say to this fellow? That professing believers are hypocrites. truth, living our life day after day after day in according to reality, not trying to redefine what we do to justify our actions, but living according to truth. Well, how about uh, righteousness, the breastplate of righteousness? Even though we're all still sinners, the Lord expects us to have a life characterized by righteousness. When we do not, we become very easy targets for Satan's mighty blasts. Is it, is it just me, or do newscasters seem to take special delight in covering stories of professing Christian leaders who have fallen. 
If you stand for the Lord, people are going to be watching. Because they know there's enough Christian background left in this country to know that people expect a certain standard of living. One of the more telling passages is Second uh, Samuel twelve fourteen, because it goes far beyond what people see. If you look at Second Samuel twelve fourteen, particularly in the King James, you get a little bit of glimpse behind the curtain into the spiritual realm. This is where, where Nathan the prophet is confronting David over his sin with Bathsheba. And Nathan says this, Howbeit because by thy deed thou hast given great occasion to the enemies of the Lord to blaspheme, the child also that is born unto thee shall surely die. We're not tremendously concerned for that child because we believe that uh, the Lord is gracious and and, uh, we'll see him in heaven. But what does he say? You have given the enemies of the Lord by this action that you've done. You've given the Lord opportunity, or I should say you've given the enemies of the Lord the opportunity to blaspheme. Who are those enemies? Angelic beings, demonic beings. Because they're watching the works of God's people. From time to time you get a little bit of glimpse in the scripture of how what God is doing in the plan of redemption is on view for the entire creation to see and to witness and, we, and when we fail, not only do other people see it, but Satan stands ready to accuse us. Do you think when he goes to make accusation to us, to the Father, that he's going to bring a lie to God? He doesn't have to. We provide him with way too much opportunity to tell the truth and accuse us before him. If you want to know how what righteousness looks like, spend time in the Gospels looking at the Lord Jesus. Because he's the soul Example of righteousness lived out perfectly in this world. Become fully acquainted with his activities, with his relationships with people. Then you'll know what righteousness looks like. Be and dependence on the Holy Spirit.
And when we do that, just as it states in Romans 8, 4, that the righteousness of the law will be fulfilled in us who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. The, the law, even though we're not under the law, the law is still a description in very practical terms of the righteousness of God. And as we are conformed to the law, and I'm not saying go out and be legalistic, but as we are conformed to the law, the righteousness of the law is fulfilled in us as we walk moment by moment in communication, in conscious dependence upon the Holy Spirit. It's called being filled with the Spirit. Then and only then will the righteousness of God work its way out through us as we live in dependence on, that Holy, on the Holy Spirit. Next, your feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace. I did mention about the... the uh, Modern soldier with body armor and, and weapons and, and various things. They have a mission. They have a purpose. They have a focus. What is our mission? What is our purpose? What is our focus? Presenting the gospel to all whom we meet. But you know, in order to do that, just like a modern soldier has to go to boot camp, and get uh, nice and, and warm and chummy with his uh, uh, drill instructor. So we have to prepare ourselves beforehand so that in any given circumstance and situation, we can give that gospel out. That's one of the great things about teaching Sunday school. By the way, this is a commercial. Or being a Jubilee Day. You have plenty of opportunity to witness. But you have to be prepared, both spiritually and intellectually. Know what the Word of God says. Be pr prepared through prayer. Or even just being ready and prayerful to look for those opportunities at work. The people who you meet. To be ready to present the gospel to those folks. But you know, when you're consistent in doing that, the next verse takes effect. Taking the shield of faith wherewith you'll be able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked. Do you think Satan's going to stand by and just let people witness to, to his 
dominion? Trials, hardships, and disappointments of life happen to everyone. Sometimes we have a, a <clears throat> excuse me, sometimes we have life seems to be working well and every, all of our expectations are met and, and life is easy. Sometimes it's not so. We all know the disasters that happened to Job. And we know that they were a direct result of the working of Satan behind the scenes, accusing Job. But have you ever taken a few moments to look at the avenues of the destruction that Satan used to attack Job? If you have an opportunity, you can write these things down or you can turn, with, turn there. In 115, the Sabaeans took his oxen. Sabaeans were a, a city-state, a, a uh, political group, you might say, with an army. And they came and attacked and, and took his oxen. In verse 116, the supernatural fire from heaven destroyed all his livestock. In 117, the Chaldeans, another political group with an army, took any, everything else that he owned as far as livestock. In verses 18 and 19, a severe weather disturbance killed his children. In chapter 2, verse 7, Satan removed his health. And in chapter 2, verse 9, his wife, who I hope was a God-fearing woman, as much as kicks him in the teeth. You'd retain your integrity, curse God and die. And then throughout the rest of his book, all his... All the rest of the book, I should say, all his godly friends tell him, oh, you're a wicked sinner, you're hiding something, you better repent. But we can see from all this that Satan has at least some measure of control over governments, over the weather, over our health, Over our friends? Thank you, Sue. Over the closest of our relationships. Do you think that, that uh, he can affect your life with any of these relationships? But the point is not what, it's not important what he can do as it is important how 
we are going to respond if and when it happens. How do we respond to the hurt, to the disappointment, to the change of fortune in our life? Will we become angry at God? Think Him to be mean, unjust, and cruel, and unfair? Will we become bitter and angry or fly into a rage because of the situation? How often have you gotten really, really mad and you know that circumstances, they can't be out, but you're just mad at the circumstances? I think we've all been there. Or maybe we become depressed because things didn't work out the way we had hoped they would. And I think we've all been there too. Or do you trust that the Lord is loving enough and sovereign enough so that only what is ultimately good for you, and I say ultimately good for you, is the only thing that will ever touch you. Do we believe Romans 8.28 to be true? We quote it so often. Do we believe it? Even though, oh, it hurts. There's no doubting the hurt. There's no belittling the hurt. When the closest of friends abandon us or speak ill of us or maybe a little bit... uh, Easier to take. They go to be with the Lord. Those those things hurt. (coughs) All things work together for good to them that love God. To them that are called according to his purpose. Do they work together for good? Then ultimately, they are good. Even though they might be tough. They are good. They might be hard. They might be painful. Ultimately, they are good. And we'll be able to Someday in glory, some people believe we'll, we'll complete, since there's no tears in heaven, then we'll, not, we'll forget about everything that happened. I don't think so. I think we'll be able to look back at the events of our life, recall them better than we can right now. But we'll see everything that happens to us from God's perspective. 
And we'll be able to see the end results. How often, just, I mean, there's a lot of, uh, of uh, experience in the room here. Let's, let's put it that way. How often in your, young, in your earlier years you went through some terrible, difficult problem? But later on in life, you came to the point where you can say, although I hated it, yet that was the best thing that could have happened to me. How many of us have had that experience? We'll have that a hundredfold in eternity. It's just wading through the pain right now. That is the difficult thing. That is the exercise of the faith. Satan means those things, those fiery darts, to destroy you. God allows them to build you up. Faith is what gets us from the normal reaction to trusting God, to saying, I'm in your hands, Lord. Though he slay me, yet will I trust him. And again, Job said, I will come forth as gold because of the trial. Peter also says, Think it not strange concerning the fiery trial which is to try you as though some strange thing happened unto you. He goes on to, say, to teach that it is that trial which is more precious than gold though it be tried with fire. That's one of the hardest lessons of life to learn. But it's true. And take the helmet of salvation. Since we have salvation in full measure from the very moment that we truly believe, Paul here is not is talking more about the assurance of our salvation more than the salvation itself. How effective a gospel communication will you give if you can only say, well, I hope I'm saved. I hope I'm on my way to heaven. You know, cross my fingers. If all the more assurance that we can communicate is, well, maybe I'll be okay. You're not going to be a very effective witness for the Lord Jesus Christ. And think of it this way, too. Not only will we not be an effective witness, but also because salvation is totally of Him, 
including the assurance of our salvation, is totally of Him, if we do not stand up and say, I'm saved by the grace of God's working in me, and I'm on my way to heaven because of His work in me, if we don't have the confidence to say that, we're demeaning His work. We're belittling Christ. We're saying that His work is incomplete. No. His work is complete. If we truly are. Now, there might be a question as to whether or not I am truly trusting in, in the shed, solely in the shed blood of Jesus Christ. There might be a question about that. But that's when you go back to 1 John chapter 5. These things have I written unto you that believe on the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. That's talking about that subjective knowledge. You look at the things that John writes about in that book, the confession of sin, the walking in the light as he is in the light. If once we have professed our salvation, we do what John says in that book. If we live that life, we will know on a very subjective level. We might know all the doctrine, but unless I feel it, I may have a doubt. But if we follow, if we walk with the Lord, as John describes it in 1 John, we'll have that feeling, that subjective feeling. I know I'm saved. I've seen his work in my life change me. And then finally, taking up the Word of God. We talked a little bit about truth and truth being, being the Word of God. But let me just say this. If we take that full assurance and show our confidence in the Lord Jesus and His Word, there's one sure thing. You will be a target of Satan. You will more importantly be an effective servant of Almighty God, cutting a swath through the enemy's territory by his power. Be assured you will need the entire outfitting mentioned above because Satan won't take lightly the spoiling of his goods and the trampling of his territory. Remember, this whole world lies in the wicked one. We are traitors of his tyranny, traitors to his tyranny. But we're still in his territory. 
which does not bode well for ease of life. All around us are far too many believers and churches who do not proclaim the gospel, do not take up the word of God. At one time they did, but as, as it seems, all too often churches and people give up on an un uncompromising stand on the word of God. It is this church's position to hold fast to the plain teaching of God's Word and to grow a positive, God-honoring, God-loving group of believers to carry the gospel forward to the next generation until He comes. That's the goal. That's our goal. And the Word of God is the practical means of doing so. But you know, the way the Lord has worked it, just having the Word of God, just understanding it, merely having a knowledge of it, even though that knowledge might be perfect, isn't enough. What's the next phrase? I had a Bible teacher, it was a special speaker actually, who was big on memory verses. And he, he was of uh, Irish descent. And he, he'd, put, put, he'd quote a verse. And then he'd point to somebody and say, well, what's the next verse? What's the next verse? Ah, you don't read your Bible. All in a desire to encourage people to understand the Word of God. And it's important to understand it. It's important to read it. It's important to memorize it. It's important to study it. What's the next verse? Verse 18. Praying at all times in the Spirit, with all prayer and supplication. To the end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all saints. Without prayer, without consistent, dedicated Effectual, fervent prayer. All the Bible knowledge becomes sterile, becomes impotent. Notice this verse starts with a present participle praying. Always. A continuous state of prayer. 
This is the manner in which we wage our warfare. Every moment of our time here, we should keep in the spirit of prayer. Now we all must have those times of, of private, in the closet, I, I like to call it formal prayer, where we get all by ourselves and no distractions, it's just the Lord and the Lord and me. We all need those times, but we can't live there. I mean, dishes have to be washed and jobs have to be done and, and the dog has to be let out and brought in and let out and brought in and let out and brought in and let it. You know how, you know how life goes. But there is a spirit of prayer. When we are out and about in the world doing what the Lord wants us to do, we need to keep the thought of the omnipresent Lord with us at all times. We need to be communing with Him. Conscious, and this is, this is my daily prayer for myself, that I become more aware of Consciously aware of His abiding presence with me. Because I don't like it when I come to my senses and I find out I'm like Jacob. Oh, God is in this place. And surely I knew it not. God is in this place. And all too often... I'm unaware of it. And maybe that's why the Lord allows those things to happen to us. Those changes of fortune. Those difficulties. Those hardships. To reel our mind back in. To say, pay attention to me. Even when we're in the middle of work. And we do have to be concentrating on what we do. I mean, we can't be, can't be, I mean, if, please, 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 do not use your time driving your vehicle as your formal prayer time. Or at least tell me when you're going to be on the road. So I can avoid it. I know a lot of people pray, and maybe it is a good thing to pray while you're driving, but not in a formal way. And don't close your eyes either. But the point is, whatever we do, when we have to be concentrating on something else, why do we do it? If we do it for the Lord's glory, we do it to honor Him. And we do it as unto Him. That's part and parcel of this process. Yes, I have to be focused on the technical aspects of the job that I'm doing. And it takes a lot of concentration. But I'm doing it so I can please my God.
all that is fighting a spiritual warfare. Putting on that belt, that truth, that righteousness, the preparation of the gospel of peace, that faith, And when we do, when we wield it, wield the word of God with prayer, we'll see him do mighty things. Lessons for our lives. Number one, never, ever forget that even though the visible opposition to the gospel comes from other people, our warfare and our fight is not with them, but with Satan and the spirits that follow him. As difficult as this might be, we must never be angry at the unsaved. And that's, that can take a lot of grace from the Lord God. Again, 2 Timothy 2, 24 and 25, the servant of the Lord must not strive, not fight, but be gentle to all men, apt to teach, patient in meekness, instructing those that oppose themselves. Thus God give them, peradventure give them repentance under the acknowledging of the truth. Look beyond that individual that is opposing you. Number two, if Satan was allowed to, he could destroy us with one stroke. One of the scariest verses in the Bible, and one of the most comforting verses in the Bible, it is when the Lord Jesus said to Peter, Peter, Satan hath desired you that he may sift you as wheat. Stop and think about that. Satan knows you. He knows where you live. To quote a statement that was made this morning, he knows where you are. Just as he knew where Job was. He knew the circumstances of his life. He knew that he was an honorable, godly man. But to quote my one teacher, what's the next verse? But I have prayed for you, Peter. I have prayed for you that your faith fail not. Satan knows where we live. Satan knows who we are. But so does the Lord God of heaven. And as powerful and as intelligent and as crafty and as capable as Satan is, it still pales into insignificance before omnipotence. 
He is our hiding place. The Lord allowed Satan to do only so much to Job and no further. Number three, your commitment to truth, living righteously, sharing the gospel, exercise of faith and knowledge of the com and commitment to the word of God are the best protection you can have from the vicious attacks that Satan will send your way during your life. Again, remember, we're all tra traitors to his authority. We were under his authority, and we are traitors from it. Yet we remain in his domain. This makes us subject to his desire to destroy us. And the more prominent we make ourselves, the more we are targets of his anger. But we have omnipotence on our side, like I said before. There's nothing, I repeat, there is nothing that can touch us unless the sovereign Lord God permits it. Number four, wielding the word of God and prayer are the, the offensive weapons that will defeat our foe. While we need to be familiar with the word of God through study and meditation and need to use it accurately and quote it with all authority, remember it's not our argumentation that will win the day, that will defeat Satan but it is the power of God. It is the Spirit of God working, using the Word of God in and through the man or woman of God that will bring about Satan's demise. I shouldn't even say it that way. That will defeat Satan in any given time. We know how Satan will, will, will ultimately fail. And five, finally, before any of this can happen in our life, we have to be born again. We have to, by faith, recognize I'm a sinner. I deserve, fully deserve the wrath of God. But because he is love, he's provided a means of salvation, which is the shed blood of Jesus Christ. And he's promised to give that to me, that salvation to me, if I stop trusting in myself, in my goodness, in my supposed goodness, and trust solely in him. Let's pray. Lord God, You've saved us with, by your Spirit 
You've given us your word. Help us to live it. You know our frame. You remember that we are dust. We give ourselves to you for you to use. In Jesus' precious name, amen. Week to week, you'll notice that we repeat a song or two, and that's so that all of us can learn it. This one is as much uh, speaking to me this morning and directed at myself as at anybody else. Make me a servant. Make me a servant.